This is David Craig, and you're listening to Leader Lab. Who are you and what do you do? Well, uh, my name is David Craig. I'm a workplace strategist. I, I work for a company called Canon Design, uh, which is a design firm, as, as the name implies, but we also uh, do a fair amount of problem solving and consulting for our clients in a range of different markets. I focus mostly on corporate workplaces, um, although occasionally we, we work on um, academic workplaces, medical workplaces, um, and a range of different things, but probably 90% of it's corporate workplaces, meaning office space. Um, so basically, I, I work with organizations to help make better workplaces. Yeah, and and so you came on my radar for a couple different reasons. Um, one of the one of the most fun to me is, I think. I mean, I, I, listeners in the podcast know, and and people that that know me know that I'm fascinated with design and the design world. But I have a hard time reconciling that love of design with the sort of evidence based management that this podcast and the people that come on this podcast are always about. Which <clears throat> made me really, really excited to encounter you because I, I joke actually in I teach in a college of business and I joke that I'm the token psychologist. And then I look at you and you're pretty much the token psychologist at, at Canon Design. You actually hold a PhD. You, you know the evidence behind what you're talking about. It's not about these sort of making a workplace pretty. It's about making sure it actually meets the goals that the, the organization that hired you wants it to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that's, that's pretty much the case. I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a psychologist in part because I've been in the business world for so long. Um, there's kind of a different level of, I guess, um, a different requirement, if you will, in terms of data and proof um, in the business world. So we try to help organizations make decisions, um, and it really depends on what their comfort and risk level is. Um, so we we do try to to base it you know on the science to the degree that we can. We try to contribute to the science, but really we're all about helping make better decisions. And at the end of the day, as you well know, there's there's a limit to how much you can prove um, when it comes down to knowledge worker productivity and uh, metrics related to knowledge worker performance, knowledge worker organization performance in general. Hmm. No, that's it. That's a fair point. I just uh, I get a kick out of the phrase token psychologist. So if I can find fellow brothers in arms, um, yeah. all, all for it. So I guess I, the other reason you kind of came up on my radar was that you, you've had a bunch of different articles and, and talks that I've seen most recently that actually provide some logic and some historical context to the debate that's raging right now, which is what is the best way to sort of design an office space? And, and, and I want to talk about open space in a little bit because that's the big thing. That seems to be at the crux of the debate. But this is not a new debate. There's actually a pretty long history of thought that goes into how do we design our workplaces? How did this all sort of start? Well, I, I mean, it, it goes way back. Um, we, we've had some type of office space for a long time, but it really kind of became an issue about 50, 60 years ago when there was a, a big change, at least in the Western economies um, after the war. Um, there was basically a lot more office work, a lot more administrative work. Companies were getting bigger. In some cases, they were beginning to be global. Um, and that trend has just continued. And I think initially... Well, if you go back to 100 years ago when you saw office spaces, um, it was, again, the administrative side of, for example, a factory. Um, and there might be an office for the owner um, or the president. Um, and then there's basically clerical staff, the people who are, are pushing paper in the office. 
Um, and everybody else is deal dealing with production for the most part uh, and services related to that. Um, so in, in that case, it wasn't a big deal as to whether you had open or enclosed office space. The president or the owner got whatever he wanted, um, which was in some cases a big office, and everybody else got a desk. Um, and then it, it became you know, a, a different story when you had a, a rise in knowledge workers in the 50s, and then the development of the middle manager class. Um, and then the question was, where, where do those people fall? Um, it wasn't simply the top and the bottom. Uh, there was now this middle group. And that, that group has expanded um, in the last 50 years. Um, so I, I think, you know, in terms of looking at office space, there was some interesting work back in the 50s and 60s, mostly coming out of Europe. Um, there was a consulting firm called Quickborner in Germany. Um, that initially started looking at offices and, and, and they were skeptical that, that the approach of the day, which um, you'd see in big office buildings by architects like Mies van der Rohe, which was to just build a lot of space, bigger floors, uh, more open spans, more distance between columns so that you could have more free-flowing desks. Um, they, they started to recognize that that didn't really support what organizations were trying to do. And it didn't reflect the complexity of what organizations were doing. Um, so they started looking at the nature of knowledge work, essentially, um, and in particular, the connections between people and groups and teams, how teams work. And, and initially, if you look at some of the Quick Warner results, um, they kept basically the open plan, but they were creating really interesting layouts. Um, and at that point, there wasn't a lot of, you know, at most you had a typewriter and a phone on the desk. And in many cases, you had neither. Um, so you really could push around desk in any place you wanted. You weren't restricted by power and data and things like that, that we, we have been at least in the past couple of decades here. Um, so when you looked at some of their layouts, it was just, it was like you know, a tor tornado came through and moved the desks around. Um, but to them, it mimicked or mirrored and supported the, the complex relationships in those workplaces. There weren't a lot of examples in the U.S., but they actually came and did some workplaces for companies like DuPont, um, and I don't think it made a huge difference in those organizations. I think at most they came in and did a couple floors of DuPont's headquarters, for example, um, and you can find examples of some of that work. Again, most of it's probably from the 60s, um, but that led ultimately to uh, a workstation system called Action Office developed by Herman Miller. Um, which was really the initial cubicle system. It wasn't designed to be cubicles, but that's got us to where we are. And there's been that constant tension between, you know, is this for the individual? Does it divine their territory? Or is it for the group and group relationships? And individuals really won out over the last 30 years. Yeah, I find that action office system story sort of fascinating. Not not a lot of people know that the, the cubicle that is currently draining your soul for most people was actually invented as a way to try and liberate it, right? It was actually sort of designed as this breakthrough and, and what was going to make everything better. Yeah, there's some great, and Robert Props, the, the guy who helped develop that system at the time in the 60s, um, wrote a book about it for Herman Miller. And he had some very strong opinions about work, and, and his primary opinion was people shouldn't be sitting in one spot to do all their work. Um, it's not healthy, which, which is, was radical at the time. It's amazing that it's, been, it's taken 50 years for people to come around and really well, start to prove that, number one, and start to recognize that it's really important. But he also said, you know, not all work is the same. In an eight-hour day, you're probably doing different activities, and, and you should really have some flexibility in the space. So yeah, it was really designed for that. It was designed for variety, and if you if you see the original layouts of that for some offices, 
uh, in the U.S., it looks, it again, looks like a tornado kind of came through the space. Of course, Herman Miller was trying to make it a little bit more systematic and and uh, and and look, you know, less chaotic. Um, but they still wanted a lot of variety, so that no two spaces necessarily had to be the same. And it's amazing how m different uh, the reality has been over the last 40, 50 years. But I think we're starting to see change now, which is great. I love the way that you structured this as the sort of needs of the individual versus the needs of the organization and the needs of the individual to mark territory winning out over the past few decades. But more recently, we've seen a shift towards this open office and with it a debate about whether or not it's the best thing. Individuals want to mark their territory again. And at the crux of this is a great article written by yourself in Fast Company, which basically says it doesn't matter whether or not you like your open office. What matters is, is it driving innovation? Is it driving collaboration? Is it doing what it's designed to be doing? I, I, one thing I would say, of course, is that it, it does matter about your, your experience of work matters. Um, and, and the goal certainly isn't to make people miserable. Um, but it's interesting how there's, well, there's always been sort of a tension um, between people getting their work done individually uh, and people contributing to the larger organization, synchronizing their work with other people, helping other people get their job done and so forth. Um, so there's there, part of what people do in almost any organization involves connecting with other people. Um, and that makes their work better, it makes other people's work better. If, if you try to take that out of the equation and just focus on an individual producing their own stuff, you're not getting the full potential. In fact, you're, you're probably getting significantly less. And that, that's been shown in, in some interesting laboratory studies of, of individual and group work. Um, and in cases where people are forced to, to interact in, in very structured ways, it can feel very chaotic. And it can feel like you don't have time to really think deeply about what you're doing. But what people don't or have a harder time assessing is the contribution of other people's thoughts to what they're doing. Oftentimes they produce better results uh, when they're forced to interact even though it feels distracting, it feels like a compromise. So yeah, I, th I think, I mean, again, I, I, the, the real challenge is you, you don't want people to be totally fried at the end of the day because they've been distracted, uh, because they've been pulled in a million different directions um, continually. So I, I think there there does need to be a balance. And my view is that no workplace should just be thought as all open or all enclosed, that, that we're not really, there's no point in debating between those two because they don't really need to exist. I think good workplaces are going to give people a little bit of both, um, privacy when they need it, or at least separation from other people when they need it. But also, and maybe to a degree, some forced interaction with other people. Google's actually a good example of this. When we worked with them many years ago, um, what came through in part was they, they wanted people to work socially together. And I think the, the kind of policy that's prevailed since then has been that nobody should be working in isolation by themselves, at least by default. So you have shared offices at Google, typically three or four person rooms, or you have sort of uh, group workstation clusters where maybe four people or three people sit in a pod. Uh, but they don't want individuals working off by themselves by default. That doesn't mean people can't go off and work by themselves, but their view is that in an engineering world, if you give people the option of, of uh, being isolated, they will be isolated uh, more than they should be. Uh, and if anything, you need to push in the other direction. In some cultures, in some types of industries, uh, that may not be an issue, but, but their view was in engineering, 
uh, you, you probably have the opposite tendency and it's not good. Um, but yeah, good workplaces, I think, ultimately give people a little bit of both. Um, they, they push them to be together part of the time and they give them the option or ability to be independent or isolated part of the time. I think what's really great is that a lot of organizations have tried um, to just get away from the idea of having any kind of dedicated space, creating workplaces that are a mix of all of the above uh, and giving people the freedom to work wherever they want. Um, it, it's been interesting because with that freedom, people can really do whatever they want. Um, and, and at a certain point, teams need to maybe pull their employees together. Um, and if you have a weak manager in that kind of workplace, sometimes things fall apart because people just get farther and farther from each other and, and the cohesion of the, the group uh, weakens over time. Uh, but with, the, with strong managers, you can, you know, we've seen in workplaces like that that um, they'll, they'll set structured times, maybe uh, certain parts of certain days when the team sits together. Uh, they'll encourage teams or, or subgroups within teams to assemble when they need to. Um, and then when they don't, you can go to a quiet corner, you can go to a private room, you can go to a different building altogether uh, if you need to get work done. So it gives people the ability to be kind of quiet and isolated for part of the day and very social and connected for the other part. Um, and we didn't have that before, I think in part because of the technology um, you know, the communication technology and the PC technology that tended to anchor people to one space uh, used to be a problem and now it's not. Yeah, you know, it actually brings up kind of my, one of my final questions I've been ruminating over as I've been thinking about this interview, which is, you, you and you mentioned it in the beginning of the interview, which is that our needs for electricity, for, for data, for, you know, connection to the internet, those sort of things sort of constrained what available designs there were. But now we've got the system where it's sort of all wireless and everybody has handed their, their laptop or, or brings their own whatever or whatever system they choose to work on. And that allows for a little bit more freedom. Where do you think that we're sort of headed? I, you've got a pretty good sense on what the, the evidence suggests for the optimal workplaces. And as technology allows us to move closer toward that, do, do you care to place any wagers on what that looks like? <laughs> will there even be an office in the future or will we all be hanging out at our house? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, when you look at sort of the, the near-term technology trends, um, it's about more mobility. You know, there, there's a move to, to more cloud, uh, use of the cloud in corporations. Um, they're lagging, obviously, what people have already been doing for many years individually outside of the office. But with that comes more flexibility. It's less need to be connected to your own corporate network, uh, greater ability to use tools. Uh, that used to be isolated within that network. Um, so there's that, um, I, you know, with greater use of tablets and um, devices like that, it, people get more mobile. Um, so I think that's going to continue. Um, we're already experiencing some of those things. It's just going to get more prevalent. Yeah, the, the big question, I guess, is what's going to happen with virtual interaction? I, I think the answer today, you know, with the technology that we have today is that it's not sufficient. Um, that there's a, a, a real benefit to being together at least part of the time. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to be together all the time. Uh, if you're a team, if culture is important um, in an organization, being together can't be replaced, I think, by virtual interaction. But obviously, you know, we, we can look ahead. Um, you know, the recent uh, news about Oculus, the VR headset that Facebook is buying or trying to buy, 
um, is, is interesting. Um, clearly, that technology, which has been around for over 20 years, commercially has been available over 20 years, uh, is, is finally you know, uh, making headway. I guess they've gotten over some of the early technical problems like motion sickness and things like that. Um, but, you know, so maybe you could envision in, in another 10, 20 years that we can be there without actually being there. We can put on our VR headset. I don't know what else you'd need to really make it feel real. But R2-B2 projector, you know. Yeah, yeah holograms. You, you could literally wander through the office from your bedroom. Um, so it's, uh, I wouldn't want to say no, but but right now it's definitely, you know, WebEx and Skype and things like that are great. They certainly uh, are helping us. They're helping people avoid unnecessary travel. They're giving people more flexibility, but they don't replace being there. They, they don't provide any spontaneity, and I think that's really the most difficult thing to do virtually. No, I think that's a really good point. And the, the, at the crux of the question is not just the idea that does technology allow us to not be there, but it's what does technology, what spaces does technology allow us to craft that are more efficient based on what we know about how humans work. I think we as humans still like being around humans and that won't change. And the research that supports that won't change. Um, on that note, I want to shift a little bit from how humans work as a whole to you and how you work as a whole and kind of get a, a glimpse into what you're looking at. The two questions we ask all of the guests, the first being, what are you reading right now? <laughs> well, I, I hate to admit it, but I don't read a lot of uh, uh, business literature or even industry literature, aside from, you know, what's in the publication. So, you know, I, I scan the blogs and the, the newspapers, um, all online, of course. Um, but, uh, you, you know, uh, after hours, after work, I tend to, to read fiction more than anything. Um, it's, it's something I love. So I'm reading George Saunders right now, um, which is just a uh, good old American. He writes short stories, in fact, uh, fiction. No, you know, I, I, you say that with a tinge of guilt, but more people answer <laughs> that than, yeah, anything, than anything else. So, yeah. so don't worry about it. And I think there's something to that. We need to be looking at the periphery and building sort of T-shaped selves instead of always just digging into our domain. So I love that. And that's one of the reasons I asked the question, whether you read business books or not. And the second question is, and I think we've sort of hinted at this a little bit when we're talking about your, your work, et cetera, and your passions, but what's next for you? What are you working on right now? Well, I'm, I'm still working with a range of organizations, trying to push them into new territory in terms of their workplaces, trying to help them break past, you know, old habits and, uh, cultures. Um, so, it, it, in that sense, I think we, we can. I continue to do what I've been doing for the last ten to fifteen years. I think, in terms of focus, um, well, maybe for the last five plus years, we've been we've been doing a lot of what we call mobile offices, um, which is basically getting rid of that idea that everybody has to have an assigned desk. So, there's been a lot of experimentation. Um, a lot of organizations have done it on a very large scale. Uh, not everybody realizes that, but there are probably uh, a dozen fairly mainstream, you know, Fortune 500 companies that have done that full scale, um, and and very successfully. Um, it, it presents all sorts of new challenges, and we continue to to study those kind of workplaces and improve them. So that's been a hot topic, and a big focus of ours. Um, we're also looking much more today at culture and innovation. Uh, not, those are two connected things potentially, but we, we're looking at them as two two distinct topics. 
Um, they seem to be uh, important to a lot of organizations these days. Um, culture being something that people feel will drive behaviors that you can't drive in any other way. Um, and innovation being a way for people to compete when they've ex done all the cost cutting they can possibly do. And when they're trying to, to you know, escape the most competitive markets into blue ocean territory. So you know, we're looking at how workplaces can make people and organizations, more importantly, more creative and more innovative. Um, and, and that's, I, I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, and we're not just talking about innovation that comes from an R&D group or a creative group, a product development group, but, but innovation that can come from anywhere, from the finance and HR group, for example, as much as it comes from product development. Um, it's all about creating better ways of doing things. And again, th those two are independent topics, but it's, as you well know, uh, a lot of people see culture as being an important driver of innovation. Uh, it can make individuals be more empowered entrepreneurial, more willing to take risks within an organization. If you have the wrong culture, it can restrict all those kind of uh, tendencies. No, absolutely. And and long-term listeners to the podcast, readers of, of my stuff know that these are topics I am quite fascinated with and thus am quite fascinated with the work that you're doing, with the work that Canon is doing, and we'll be keeping an eye on it for the meantime. Or we'll be keeping an eye on it for a long time. In the meantime, thank you so much for for the conversation. I think you know we we interview a lot of different authors on this podcast, but very rarely do we do we interview the people who are sort of shaping the workplace that some of those authors and le and leaders are actually designing and really asking those questions about does your workplace even work for you? So this has been absolutely fascinating. So David, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.